Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. I'm Carla Santos and this is Connecting the Dots. They make up less than 5% of the global population. Yet, indigenous peoples and local communities support about 80% of the world's biodiversity. And even if this staggering fact is slowly penetrating mainstream discussions on conservation, again and again we hear about human rights violations, land dispossession, and offenses that limit these communities' self-determination in the name of conservation. Under the banner of environmental protection, a forever colonial model of fortress conservation is often imposed on indigenous communities by means of forceful evictions from their ancestral lands and restriction of usage of natural resources, all leading to an erosion of culture and identity and a breakdown of social relations. But the history of humankind is also the history of the resilience of indigenous peoples, of how they have survived and thrived in the face of these aggressions, of how they bear the effects of the West's consumerism and pollution that they didn't participate in, and of how they're finding ways to mitigate its impacts through innovative adaptations and traditional knowledge. The vast Arctic region is home to many indigenous communities, and it is also warming six times faster than the global average. It is a preview of the severe crisis we face and the hopeful future we can build for ourselves. For in the face of numerous challenges, these communities have been developing and implementing successful conservation strategies. Our guest today is uniquely positioned to help us understand how these communities' efforts can be valued and defended, and also how we can build bridges between conservation movements worldwide so that protecting nature is never again used to disguise land grabs or human rights violations. Victoria Bushman is an Inupiaq wildlife and conservation biologists raised between the vast tundra of Utkiagvik, Alaska, and the tall redwoods of Northern California. As the first Inuk doctor of conservation biology in the world, she tirelessly worked to promote the role indigenous peoples must play in every aspect of Arctic conservation strategies, from research to management. She's involved in multiple working groups, panels, and committees. To name only a few, She's a principal investigator in the Inuit knowledge of marine ecosystems in North Greenland, an indigenous liaison for the Food Sovereignty Working Group, and an advisory member of the Seon Roads Advisory Panel. We're very fortunate to have Tia Beckshoft on our advisory committee, because there's also no one better suited to make this conversation about the Arctic even more interesting. Tia is a marine biologist with a PhD in polar bear ecology and physiology. She has spent over 15 years studying polar bears, publishing peer-reviewed scientific papers, and conducting fieldwork in Greenland and Canada. Thea has also guided polar voyages in Svalbard in Russia, and is currently working as a researcher with Polar Bears International. She is the creator and host of the popular Facebook page, Polar Bear Questions. Thank you both for accepting our invitation to lend your knowledge to us all who listen to Connecting the Dots. Tia, I know you have a lot you want to explore, so go right ahead, please. Thank you so much, Carla, for the introduction. And thank you so much, Victoria, for finding the time to talk to us, to me today. I really appreciate it, and I've been looking forward to our meeting. 
So I was wondering uh, if you could start us off by sharing a bit about the Nupiat community of Utkiakvik, where you were raised. Um, how are ideas of conservation and sustainability embedded in your culture's relationship to the land? And yeah. I thank you so much for having me. Um, I'd love to talk about my home community. Utkiakvik is a small uh, Anupiat, primarily Anupiat community in the far north of Alaska. It's actually the town that is the northernmost in the entire United States, although it's not the northernmost town in the North American continent that's actually here in Greenland. Um, but I was raised in a community that uh, is very separated in many ways from the rest of the world. We don't have road systems uh, in the same way that other communities are connected, like in the lower 48 uh, or even in other parts of Alaska. So most of our goods are coming um, by plane. And the reason that they don't come by ship is because we have a lot of sea ice, uh, often about nine months of the year. So we can't even have barges to bring our normal goods um, to our community. And what this means is that uh, if you can imagine, a grocery store is not necessarily a very accessible uh, resource for a lot of community members, um, because as things are coming by air, they become astronomically more expensive. For example, a gallon of milk in Okayagwe can go for $11, which is about maybe three or four times more expensive than in other parts of the United States. And this means that a lot of community members um, don't have the same access to uh, foods that we do uh, in other parts of the world. And so this really um, shows that we really do rely and have relied on our traditional sources of food for a very long time. Now, I come from a community also where hunting uh, both on land and on sea is extremely important. There's also a small fishing community, but primarily Anupiat are uh, marine hunters. We're primarily on kayak or on umayak, which is a very large skin boat. And the community of Akayakvik, uh, among a lot of marine mammal sea hunting, which includes seals and walrus, um, polar bear even, uh, we also are the largest bowhead whaling community in the world. And this is actually something that has fully defined our culture as a Nupiat from other Inuit in the Arctic. We are very strong bowhead whaling peoples. Um, and we still do this traditionally by a skin boat, which is paddled by hand. Um, and I was raised in this context with this great appreciation for how hard you have to work for your food, how hard you have to um, work to be comfortable in your environment. My hometown can be as cold as negative 60 degrees in the winter time. And it's rarely that warm in the summer, to be honest, like you get above zero for a while, but um, it's not particularly uh, comfortable in that sense a lot of the time. So basically our existence as a people has, has very much relied on our knowledge of the environment, our abilities to, to survive and also to thrive in our environment. 
Um, and we have been able to keep this uh, culture uh, alive for, you know, all throughout the colonial period, which is very impressive because other Inuit communities in other parts of the Arctic have had more difficulty in some regards uh, to maintaining culture uh, that is very much related to knowledge of the environment as well. It sounds challenging and very beautiful. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, growing up, um, what made you aware that Indigenous and Western perspectives, perspectives on conservation were not necessarily aligned? When and how did you decide that you would tackle this divergence by trying to change the system from within, if you will? Yeah. Conservation issues are so apparent in the lives of Anupiat that they can't be ignored. Even from a very young age, I have been aware of sort of the laws and regulations that surround uh, our ability to, um, to practice our culture, right? So uh, in the United States, especially because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, uh, we are uh, very much confined to what we are allowed to do as Indigenous peoples and under what laws, what regulations, so much so that, you know, the government is telling us what we can put for dinner on the table um, every day. And so as a child, these kinds of conversations around the fisheries and around the hunting and the opening and closing of the seasons and the population dynamics uh, from the science perspective, these kinds of conversations are very um, out in the open for a lot of Anupiat. I remember as a young child, uh, we go hunting quite often, like wanting to know why we have to report in certain information when we go hunting, like what we're catching and these kinds of things and like who's using that information and how are they coming up with these numbers. Um, but it wasn't really cemented for me that I wanted to work personally on conservation issues until I was about 17. And I have kind of a little bit of a cliche story for Inuit, but um, I was out on a skiff, which is like a, a very small aluminum boat uh, with some family of mine. And it was about maybe one o'clock in the morning uh, in the middle of the night, but it was bright outside because it was summertime. And a pod of maybe 200 beluga came by and we cut the engine and we were just sitting there and um, watching them be around. And it had been about the first time in about 15 years that we had seen beluga in our region. So they're not uh, very common, but they used to be more common. And um, of course, I was very much enjoying that they're uh, engaging with us. And there's also some, you know, we have some culture around uh for hunting for us we say that the animals give themselves to us there's this human animal relationship uh that is very important to us in fact uh, this isn't spoken about too much but we we very much believe in uh kind of a version of reincarnation that people are born from animals and animals are born from people and so you have to be a good hunter because uh, you don't want your family to suffer. You don't know if that is, you know, somebody that you have known recently. Anyways, so uh, this is like a very special moment for me because, of course, being surrounded by 200 beluga, no matter what, is uh, very um, 
incredible moment, uh, even if you are kind of used to this environment. And I decided, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to work with animals. Um, and one thing that I should mention is that, of course, many of these beluga, well, not many, but some of them were also caught for food during this particular moment. Um, and and that for me is part of this, okay, well, I want to ensure that our peoples can continue to practice our culture. We can continue to um, eat the foods that we always have. And with recognition that, you know, Inuit, we have our own um, values and rules actually within our own society that um, make our hunting practices sustainable. And why aren't those recognized in the Western context? Um, I wanted to bring some of this to light to show that even though we are still hunting a lot of the species that, you know, at the global level, people consider um, very threatened and endangered, uh, there is an extreme uh, amount of caution and respect that goes into that, and that uh, we have been practicing these sort of methods very sustainably for thousands of years. And that hasn't been recognized by the conservation community um, that much. Of course, it has been more in recent years, but uh, I knew that that was sort of the, the issue that I wanted to work on as I moved forward. Very understandably so. I was wondering, um, you know, you remember these conversations about the quotas probably and the limitations that were put on on the hunting um and i was just wondering do you remember any researchers coming into the community and sharing any information or you know any of the feedback or was it just you giving giving data to projects yeah this is a really good question you know there we we are in a position in Okaglik of of being um, an important part of the research community because there are some very important Arctic research stations there, um, some particular labs that have been uh, collecting data for decades. So it's quite it was quite common for us to have researchers in town, um, but they are mostly working with the wildlife department at the North Slope Borough, which is the local government. Um, of course, there were sometimes um, presentations of the information and data, but they weren't very accessible to community members, in part because that feels like a very separate world for us. And these meetings were happening like quite far out of town at these research stations, so they weren't always uh, very accessible. That said, I did work for some years at the Bear Arctic Science Consortium uh, doing slightly different work, um, but uh, there was definitely an interest in the communities of, oh, what is happening? We don't know why these, these decisions are being made and why they keep sending different people every year to do this data collection. Um, so that was always uh, a divide that didn't seem particularly easy to overcome for a lot of people. Um, so you serve, as uh, Carla also said in the introduction, as the first Inuk Doctor of Conservation Biology in the world. And I mean, this is applaudable no matter mm -hmm. how you look at it. Uh, and it makes me wonder, how do we ensure that others will have the opportunity to follow in your footsteps? 
Um, and I had a look on your website, which is brilliant, and I encourage everyone to go take a look at it. Um, and you linked one of your opinion pieces, I think it was, where the headline was, Indigenous youth are the future of Arctic research, conservation, and management. Getting us there is going to take a lot more than open arms. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, what is the importance of it and what is needed for Indigenous youth to be able to pursue an education uh, like yours? Not necessarily academic, but one that allows them to partake in research and conservation and management decisions uh, going forward. Yeah, this is incredibly important to me. You know, I don't think I would have made it down this path if I hadn't also been raised in the lower 48. Um, that obviously gave me a lot of um, additional opportunities to pursue my interests. Because if we if we look at the Arctic in general, there are actually very few universities here. There are uh, some, you know, we have the University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, as a major university in Alaska. And then we have the University of Greenland here in Greenland. Um, but there aren't particularly many that are in close proximity to indigenous communities. I should mention there's also the University of Tromsø for some Sami people. Um, but not all of these universities are actually offering degrees in science. For example, the University of Greenland um, has mostly bachelor programs in um, the humanities. So for Inuit who live in Greenland, if they want to pursue um, a degree in science or to become more versed in research and these kinds of things. Uh, often people want to see that they have an interest in science, that they have an interest in um, sort of biology and wildlife. And even if these youth are coming with tons of experience as hunters and fishers, they often have to make the commitment of leaving their entire country to get an education in another country. So many youth that want to who, uh, study biology, there are not very many here, um, will go to Denmark to study um, at the universities in Denmark, and then will come back. But the issue with this is not just having to move to another country, it's also um, a separation from your support network, it's a separation from um, uh, a place with cultural understanding, um, I think for young people, it can be very difficult to make this decision to leave everything you know behind to enter a world that is not particularly friendly to your worldview. And this has been an issue uh, for many Inuit. I know that I have quite a few friends and colleagues who had wanted originally to study in the wildlife sciences or in the biologies, because that was what was most aligned with their personal interests, but they could never you know, either make the grades to go to a foreign university or they couldn't, um, you know, even if they were qualified, uh, upon going to such a program didn't feel like they fit in or that, you know, that uh, their understanding of the world was respected in those ways. And so often uh, Inuit, even those who attempt to go to university to study these things end up finding all of these roadblocks 
that that's make it much more difficult. Now, of course, having a degree in my mind is not sort of the only way to be involved in these uh, activities in management and decision making. And there's a little bit more recognition for this now. Um, particularly, we see that in Canada, there's a lot of support for bringing youth into sort of these guardianship programs and for um, providing research opportunities for youth that are in high school and um, even advisory opportunities to advise researchers in this mutual learning um, uh, sort of space. But um, we don't see it enough. And I would still say that it is incredibly hard as a young indigenous person in the Arctic to be a part of these huge, huge discussions that are happening. Of course, many of the decisions around conservation that are being made now are not even just at the national level, right? We're talking about these internationally coordinated efforts um, where they do want somebody in that discussion, in that negotiation, to be sitting there to have a PhD. And um, it's more or less, I would say, a disservice to ourselves as a global population to have these requirements that um, that um, exclude Indigenous peoples from these conversations. I have been very lucky in my personal time to have access to these international fora, to the UNFCCC, to the Arctic Council to other places where these decisions are being made simply because of my educational attainment. Um, not necessarily, and I will say this very honestly because I am the best person for that job because there are situations where I would say, yes, I'm a knowledge holder, but the person that you want to talk to about this issue would be a hunter. And I can tell you a number of people who would give you the most valuable information about a particular species or a particular location or particular priorities or management strategies. And they're just not invited to be at the table. And I find that uh, to be an extreme loss as we move forward on conservation issues, because even me as one person, I can't represent all Inuit in all locations, in all communities, for all species. You know, I try my best, but to be very honest, like that's very, um, it's impossible. And there are so many good people, so many talented and knowledgeable people that could be a part of these conversations that are not. Yeah, I know it's a really big question, but, and a lot of my questions are, because <laughs> this is a huge topic. Um, but where would you start if you were to make, you know, these international forum more inclusive? Yeah, I think this is a really good question, too. I think it's very difficult because many of these fora, they do have indigenous. Well, not all of them, but many of them have uh, either like permanent participants from indigenous organizations, or they have uh, fellowship programs specifically for indigenous peoples, like the International Arctic Science Committee has a fellowship for um, indigenous uh, students. But for the most part, because of this heavily academic uh, um, approach to sort of international affairs, most of these programs are targeted to students who already have their masters, who are considering PhDs, who are working as postdocs. And there is some value in that because 
for sure there are people in those spaces there are more indigenous scholars who are working at the masters and phd level and i'm thinking about my colleagues my indigenous colleagues from russia and my indigenous colleagues from sapmi and um, particularly uh, our indigenous colleagues in canada there are more scholars and i think that that's very beautiful but the truth is that it's just not we can't assume that people have access to this kind of education at all and that you know oh if you were just smart enough and applied yourself you would you would be able to get there that's that's definitely not how it works I mean we're talking about communities that don't even have high schools they don't have you know students here in Greenland uh, I should I haven't mentioned I actually I live here in Greenland I've lived in Greenland for some years but um, students here, uh, there are only three high schools in the whole country. So students move from all the communities in Greenland when they're very young just to go to high school. And even that sometimes is is too much to ask uh, for somebody who knows I'm going to be a hunter like my family before me. I'm going to be a fisher, my family before me. And those are perfectly acceptable and good uh, trajectories for those people's lives. And it's just uh, one thing that I would recommend for these international fora is to create more youth, uh, like community youth panels, community youth um, exchange opportunities even, but to remove a lot of those requirements for what kind of educational attainment you have, what kind of uh experiences have you had uh what is your interest in international affairs because you know what many many people don't necessarily want to work in international affairs they just have that knowledge that is so important to to moving forward with these conservation efforts mm -hmm. i think that's a really good point and you know academia is a very academia loves titles and i don't think that always serves us well Right. Um, and I actually I wanted to dive into academia a little bit more, because even I, as a white academic coming from a colonizer country, I can see that in many ways this is a broken system that is not conducive to diversity or equity or to a very large degree to incorporating indigenous knowledge holders in the research that it produces. And. I mean, of course, this may vary between different fields of research, but coming from polar bear research, uh, this is certainly the case in many instances, as I'm sure you're well aware of. Um, and I know this is another huge question, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how to turn this around. Um, how do we decolonize Arctic research and better mesh the Western scientific methods and the indigenous knowledge in every research project out there. Um, how do we how do we help fix uh, academia on this point? Yeah. Massive question, but definitely yes. very important. Um, in the conservation sphere, I do find that we are making vast improvements in the kind of knowledge that is allowed to be a part of um, sort of the assessments and the management strategies and the reporting and uh, even so much as the research. It's not all 
exclusionary. There are definitely really good examples of researchers working with Indigenous communities and actually using Indigenous knowledge um, to come to um, important conclusions and to make important recommendations. For example, <clears throat> just a few uh, months ago, uh, there's a woman here, a polar bear biologist, Kristen Leder, mm -hmm. who uh, actually sat on my PhD committee when I was at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. She published a paper in collaboration with many folks and also um, in recognition that they had partnered with some hunters uh, down in South Greenland. Um, and had been able to actually identify that the population of polar bears in South Greenland actually represents a distinct 20th population of polar bears um, in the world. And this was really important because without the indigenous knowledge, there wouldn't have been a recognition for the behavioral differences in the population. It wasn't so much based on, you know, necessarily just the genetics, but uh, Inuit in South Greenland were very aware that there is a population of polar bears that exist in a very different way than polar bears do in other places. And the reason this is important is because polar bears in South Greenland actually live in an environment that is more open water and glacial ice than it is uh, sea ice. And so this has been, uh, the idea behind it is that we're looking at a population of polar bears that is already historically adapted to a more warm sea environment. And for a long time, we've been thinking that polar bears aren't necessarily very um, adaptable, that they're very tied to sea ice. And of course, this is very true. But we finally have an example where we can study bears that are more uh, open ice associated than other populations have been. This is my understanding of that project. But um, there are these um, research projects that are trying to do more with Inuit knowledge, um, trying to be more engaged with the communities from the outset. Um, I'm not saying that this is like the exemplary example, you know, like this is the, the example up there, but um, there have been plenty of, um, for example, plenty of examples in Alaska and Canada in particular, where community members have actually been asked to validate the findings of scientific research. Um, which is very new. Um, it's been only, I've only seen it a few times in the last maybe five or six years. But in recognition that there are sometimes mistakes in research, and I can share one particular one, a very famous one, I would say, from my own hometown in Okayavik. There had been some research in the 1970s about the bowhead whaling population, bowhead whale population. And the researchers had come up to do their assessments of the population and they had come to the conclusion that the population was in horrific decline. They hadn't seen almost anything. And with the recommendations from the research, the US government closed the whaling hunt for that year. And this was a huge problem for our community because if we have food insecurity in the North now, it definitely was there in the 1970s. And um, 
a lot of the hunters and the whaling captains came together and they said, we, this is not reflective of what we're seeing uh, on the day to day, right? So hunters and fishers are much more um, involved in the environment than, than researchers who come up for just a few weeks here or there out of the year. And they said, we don't think this is correct. We're going to invite the researchers back and we're going to ask them, you know, where they've been looking and that kind of thing. And and it turns out, of course, that the researchers were not looking in the whale's preferred habitat for that time of the year. So they had horribly miscalculated um, what the population was. And of course, this has impact on people's lives, of people's ability to feed their families. So this is a really significant mistake. And the hunters were able to take the researchers to the place where they do have their preferred habitat. Um, and the population count uh, was stable as it had been in the previous years. Um, so this was sort of the first major example for the North Slope of community members being able to show researchers that no matter how much you look in one particular area, if it's not the right area, you're not going to get an accurate number, right? So this... <clears throat> has been sort of an issue with indigenous communities time and time again. Uh, we see this uh, pretty consistently, actually. There are some populations of narwhal and beluga, both in Canada and in Greenland, that are the population numbers are disputed. Um, there's also some uh, backlash from community members here in Greenland about particular narwhal counts in East Greenland. Um, and there are some pretty significant criticisms of the methodologies that are being used uh, to count narwhal here in Greenland. And I say that specifically because we have a very small research team here in Greenland that are doing a lot of this wildlife research. And uh, many of these populations, not particularly the ones in East Greenland, but many of the beluga and narwhal populations are actually shared between Canada and Greenland. And these two countries have very different methodologies for how they count the population. And in Canada, there's a little bit more respect for wanting to do it with Inuit knowledge. You know, they're required by um, certain laws in Nunavut to also include an Indigenous knowledge component to any kind of research that um, includes uh, species that are important to communities. And we just see very different results coming out of the research in Canada than we do the research coming out of Greenland. And this is just a particular example of how it's a huge spectrum of how much researchers are comfortable or want to even engage with communities in research, um, what their expectations are, and uh, quite frankly, like what community engagement looks like. There's an ethics behind it as well. Um, and ethics to using Inuit knowledge and ethics to being involved with um, Indigenous communities in an appropriate way that is not more or less extractive of information. Like Inuit also want to be involved in these conversations, not just research, but also how is that information that I'm giving going to be involved in producing regulations and policies and management strategies. Um, so we do a good job and we do a bad job. And I think that's more or less how how it's going to be. But hopefully we're making small steps forward in ways that are meaningful for communities. Hopefully we're we're heading towards a better place than we have been. 
Um, but this ties really well into my next question because um, you said in some other interview, I think it was that I heard that indigenous knowledge and science can be partnered and learn from each other, but not integrated, right? And I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about that. Also this um, concept of co-productive conservation that was in your paper from last year. Yeah, definitely. So the, the argument that I have made, and I think many Inuit have made, is that when we put the word integrate into the mind of a researcher, oftentimes we end up dealing with people who are really expecting to come into a community to somehow get indigenous knowledge and turn it into numbers and then put it into their model. And this is like, we, we see this quite often where there's just this mismatch in the expectation of what indigenous knowledge is, what indigenous knowledge is not, how it can be used <clears throat> and applied and how it can inform science. And so with recognition that there's a lot of confusion around how that works, I prefer to use the term partnered. And I think partnered kind of implies that there's also this back and forth. I would say that community members are really interested in the science. They want to know how the decisions are being made, how the conclusions are come to, because these conclusions are very much, very concretely affecting their everyday lives. Like that's something that I think a lot of researchers don't necessarily have a full a full appreciation for. Like this is not just a job. This isn't just like a paper. This is, um, in many cases, it can be something that actually affects an entire community's well-being, <clears throat> ability to practice their culture, ability to hunt and fish. It's uh, very high stakes, I think, for a lot of communities. But also there's a lot that indigenous knowledge can offer research, including like the example I had just given, like sometimes we need to know where something is. That is a really basic use of indigenous knowledge. We've also seen in Canada that indigenous knowledge has been used to um, sort of pinpoint areas of disease emergence um, for things like avian cholera. Um, this is like a, a disease that comes quite quickly. And there has been some research, and I can't remember what paper I was reading, but it was saying that sort of indigenous knowledge um, increases the uh, response times to avian cholera, um, that researchers can identify it faster because community members, hunters, can identify it before anybody else. Um, and this is a disease that really decimates whole entire bird populations, right? And a lot of communities, especially in Canada, really rely on um, bird hunting as well. So uh, this is also important. So sometimes it's it's really basic knowledge that is needed in, in science, but sometimes it's also more complex. It's about relationships between particular species or relationships between species and a particular um, sort of environmental quality. We see also that indigenous knowledge can be predictive uh, in some ways of the responses that wildlife will have to climate change. So when we know that wildlife of uh, a species is associated with a particular preferred habitat or particular preferred species of um, 
uh, of prey or something like this, we can actually start to imagine what it's going to look like when, oh, this population of fish is in decline or they're moving northward. So what is this population of of uh, seal or uh, beluga or narwhal going to be doing in response? And we do have papers that are, you know, in Greenland again, just a few months ago, there was a paper that was released that was saying that, yes, basically all species of marine mammals will be shifting northward under climate change. We can imagine that they will be moving northward in the next few, few years. That's a thing that management is considering. But um, these kinds of things, while we recognize them, I think in the scientific community aren't necessarily, like this was big news in Greenland. People didn't realize that there had been research done on this. And a lot of community members were saying, well, yeah, we've we we were we've been seeing a northward trend for different fish, fish populations, for different um, species. We were sort of expecting this, but we didn't realize it was gonna be this, this big, you know? So, there's definitely um, a lot to be learned also from Inuit knowledge, but I think it's best when Inuit knowledge and uh, science are partnered in a way where we can not only explore the priorities of scientific research, but also the priorities of particular communities. Um, we want to be doing research that is actually useful to the human beings who live on this planet, uh, things that are important um, to people's livelihoods. I think, you know, at the very heart of it, everyone wants the same, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a better world for all the living beings that inhabit it. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems that oftentimes we have different language mm -hmm. and that, you know, just because the language isn't the same and the terms aren't the same, that it just, it's, it put a stop it puts a stop to everything, or at least makes it flow less naturally. Uh, the conversation of, you know, also within conservation and management. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? How? Oh, well, exactly. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, Western scientific methods and all of this they are you know they're broadcast on radio and tv and everywhere on the internet so so most people in the north probably know at least something of them but that flow of information doesn't necessarily go the other way around so i think you know it's mostly on us to learn a different way of communication yeah i think it's communication but i think it's also it's this very strange narration, I think, of what the Arctic is that gets in the way of being able to cooperate, I think, in a really good way, to work together in a good way. And what I mean by that is when I look at things that are written about the Arctic or things that are written about our communities here or written about species that live in the Arctic, what I read is not like the truth that is experienced here. This There's this idea that the Arctic is this empty, vast, horribly, you know, cold, terrible place where like nobody can survive and animals are, you know, struggling for their lives for every second. And, you know, 
these things just don't ring true for me when I read about the North. And, you know, we do have a lot of researchers who come from other parts of the world who bring some of those ideas with them that the Arctic is just, you know, why would we talk to a community? The community is so far from the thing that I'm studying. Like, it, it, there's no relevance there. Um, sometimes people don't even know that people live in Greenland or live in Northern Canada or live in Northern Alaska. People are just not aware. And I think uh, we also do a disservice to ourselves by telling these like half-truths about the Arctic. Like we're not exploring what it really is. And what I imagine is part of the problem is that, you know, indigenous peoples have not been invited to be a part of that nar narrative of creating the narrative of what the North is. And of course, we're starting to see more, you know, books by Indigenous authors, and we're seeing more um, articles and newspaper clippings and things that are written by Indigenous peoples. But for the most part, if you, you know, turn on the TV and you want to watch a documentary about the Arctic, you're watching BBC and, you know, the researchers are like getting these glamorous shots of these ice, ice fields caving and stuff and they're saying it's so far from from everything in the world and it's so far removed and we're in this the middle of nowhere and I know where those shots are taken they're taken outside of Ilulis that you could walk half an hour and go eat a burger in town at a five-star restaurant like you don't need to be over dramatic about it <laughs> so I feel like the global public is also not getting an accurate picture of what what the arctic is and and the relationships here and the importance of of you know all of us working together because we just don't tell we don't tell the story we don't tell the story in a way that gives it justice and i think if we can overcome some aspects of that and we can communicate better between community members and researchers and really identify shared priorities um, I think we've been in a much better place. And I completely agree with you that I think globally, we all have the same priorities that, you know, we want uh, species to be able to uh, coexist here in a way that is natural and healthy. And um, we want communities also to be to have good well-being and to be healthy. Um, but I think we just struggle with understanding that our priorities are the same. You know, we do really want the same things. It's just often conservation can come also from a perspective of more animal rights than it is about sustainability and natural life. And, and I know that a lot of people struggle with that aspect also of conservation. And I think that might also be a place of, of conflict for indigenous communities who really see our practices as being extremely respectful. Um, you know, I would even say that in many ways, like our hunting practices and our norms and our our rules and our laws as a as a society are actually very loving um, towards towards animals, and we want to be able to continue to to hunt and to fish as we always have, and to share that relationship with species for for time immemorial for as long as possible. Um, and this, I find, is usually a community's number one priority. We want to have these relationships with these animals, and we want to be able to do them in a way that we know is good. 
for both our community and of course for for the animals themselves absolutely i was wondering so you know you've grown up in alaska and now you live in greenland and i know you've worked with indigenous communities all across the arctic and i was wondering conservation wise um are the needs the wants the challenges are they similar between communities between countries yeah they definitely are um it's actually extremely surprising how the challenges and the needs and the desires are so closely related despite being you know Inuit here in Alaska Canada Greenland and part of Russia and then you know Sami people who are in Norway Sweden Finland part of Russia and then there's also of course Russian indigenous peoples we are all very distinct cultures but at the same time we are all having the same challenges of of being taken seriously in these discussions of being invited to the table of being asked to share our knowledge or not being asked to share our knowledge um these things are all very very similar when i speak with my sami colleagues they might be having more issues with sort of the green energy transition than we are as inuit but essentially the problems are the same they can't herd their reindeer in a way that they always have been able to do and the fragmentation of their landscapes by you know, development and these kinds of things is a major challenge to their livelihoods. I see that also on our side where you know, the development of new mineral mines or um, new uh, shipping industry, these kinds of things are also challenging to the species that we rely on, particularly marine mammals who are sensitive to the noise of mining and drilling um, during particular migration times. So we're really seeing a lot of very similar, similar relationships uh, between all of us. And that's why there's so much good coming out of us uh, engaging with each other as indigenous peoples, one indigenous peoples to another indigenous peoples, because we have so much to learn from each other, from our experiences and the ways that we manage certain uh, issues and work through certain policy processes. Um, this has been extremely helpful. And there is significant um, effort by Indigenous organizations to continue working together. You know, the Sami Council and the Inuit Circumpolar Council together uh, make up sort of the Arctic permanent participants of the UN. So we have a lot of space in the United Nations to work together on Arctic issues. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie around that in particular. Of course, we are not seeing our Russian colleagues right now, um, which is a whole other thing. But for me, this is this is horribly tragic. We have a lot of very close colleagues in Russia um, who have the same problems as us, you know, and fight the same battles within their government um, that we just don't hear from anymore. And for us, that you know, there are many more indigenous peoples in Russia than there are in, you know, it's just Inuit and Sami and then all the indigenous peoples in Russia. So we, we've lost a significant uh, partner in, in those conversations in, in recent months. So this is incredibly interesting and I would love to continue for hours, but I know we don't have that much time left. So I just want to uh, maybe finish off with one or two final questions. Uh, and I was wondering, beyond the Arctic context, 
Um, do you feel like indigenous communities globally are increasingly shaping conservation through science and policy? Oh, definitely. I think it's incredible to what extent indigenous peoples are a part of these conversations now. And I've I've kind of talked mostly about the Arctic, where we're still quite slow in this regard, but the global recognition, particularly from you know IPCC and from the United Nations, is tremendous. It's huge, and especially as we go to uh, the different COPs, um, some of the the climate change related um, sort of strategizing and and benefits that are coming to indigenous peoples are entirely unprecedented in my mind. Like we are seeing huge steps forward um, at, at you know, COP 2026 and and in COP 27. Um, this is, you know, it's so good for me to see and to learn also from other communities that are working in other parts of the world. Um, because just like in the Arctic, where many of us are having the same challenges and the same, um, we're seeing the same uh, good organizing and the same, you know, wins, we see this actually all over the globe. And it's wonderful for me to be able to have the opportunity also to speak with indigenous folks from, you know, South America and from uh, the Pacific Islands and these kinds of things, because all of these communities in, in my mind, that I have met with through, you know, work at the UN and these kinds of things are all so passionate about conservation. And it's a very different flavor of conservation than we see, you know, from the Western perspective. But there's so many different uh, strategies and approaches uh, that have been developed by different communities. And it's it's wonderful to be able to see um, what they're doing and whether, you know, to consider whether or not implementing those kinds of ways forward are possible for us here at home. Um, so I feel like extremely, I feel extremely grateful that that uh, more and more recognition is, is coming for Indigenous peoples in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we round the conversation off, I want to ask you if there's anything you want to share uh, with our listeners that we haven't touched on here, something I should have asked but didn't? Maybe one thing that is really interesting but doesn't necessarily require a question is that, like, right now in this decade, we are so excited in the Arctic because we are looking at possibly upwards of 10 new protected areas here in the Arctic. And many of them, if not all of them, are being sort of negotiated and, and established and assessed with indigenous communities. So we're looking at the designation of um, a new bilateral indigenous-led protected area between Canada and Greenland called Pekila Soswak in the north. And it is a massive area. And of course, it's taking years and years and years to get this sorted, but we still see small steps forward in, in establishing this massive protected area that is going to be there to sort of uh, conserve the habitat, uh, these ice open ice area habitats for a lot of marine species, but also we're talking about a space where, you know, Inuit rights um, are being respected, uh, that Inuit priorities are being brought to the table. And uh, essentially we're looking at an establishment of a protected area that um, should be 
first and foremost, of benefit to the marine species and to Inuit communities. And that's really special. And we're seeing that in a lot of places, particularly also in Canada, of, of the this incredible work that's being done around um, particularly marine conservation at this moment. Um, but uh, it's, it's really good to see. And um, there's a lot of exciting things to look forward to on the horizon for, for Arctic conservation too. That's great to hear. Um, I was wondering if any of our listeners want to support Indigenous-led conservation initiatives in the Arctic, uh, financially or otherwise, what would be the best way to do it? I would say that uh, if you wanted to make a financial contribution, the WWF Canada office, I think, is is extremely good at uh, collaborating and working with uh, Inuit communities in particular. Um, so I would encourage uh, folks to check out the work that they're doing. Uh, they fund work outside of Canada as well. So um, it's more about uh, particular offices, but um, there's definitely places to, to, to help out in that regard. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today to talk with me, with us, and for sharing your thoughts and your knowledge and for answering all my questions. Um, and for anyone wanting to learn more about Victoria and her work, you can find her on her own website, which is victoriabushman.com. There's a blog, there's talk about research, there are absolutely stunning pictures. And you can also find those on Instagram, where her handle is Victoria Bushman. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.